grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Who can you trust? When you look at surveys of Americans and you start asking these questions, do you have confidence in your government? The crisis at the border, abortion, election law, marriage laws, Trump or Biden, the Supreme Court. Who can you trust? A Gallup poll shows that one in four of Americans have confidence in the Supreme Court, for instance, when you start asking questions about the impartiality of our judicial system. Three in four have some or very little confidence. Now that 25% that have much confidence compares to about 50% confidence in the Supreme Court dating back to 1973. But then around the year 2006, that dropped to 35%, and now it's down to 25%. So as we watch all of this unfold before us, there's a lot of debate. And it kind of depends on whether you feel that your side is winning. Generally, then, the polls sway according to whether you feel that the person you're asking to trust is on your side or not. And if you don't feel they're on your side, you don't have much confidence. In fact, the debates become not really about the issue or the law or the truth. They become more about personalities. An idea turns into an ideology, and an ideology turns into ideology. We start putting all of our judgments into categories. A lot of it is driven by emotion, anger, hurt, jealousy, passion. But ultimately, we start asking questions to put things in categories and find out what side are you on. Are you pro-abortion or anti-abortion? Republican, Democrat. Are you liberal or conservative? Gay or straight? Are you Christian or are you an atheist? It comes right into churches when we start labeling what branch we belong to as the Lutheran, Catholic, Baptist, who are you? What side are you on? And we start to classify ourselves and then others on the boxes that we feel everyone should fit into. Now, I'm not trying to say that debate is something I wouldn't encourage or discourse or taking a stance on issues. But as we get into this text today, most people I talk with are really not talking about truth. They're talking about sides. And they associate their sides with winning or losing, and whatever leader is in their court is the one that they're going to relate to. We make all sorts of judgments all the time. It could have to do with how you vote, or it could be what church you go to. It could be what part of town you live in, 
or what car you drive or how you dress or where you work. I remember walking into Bojangles just this last week and based on the person I was talking to and how they looked at me and how they handled my order, I had made six or seven judgments before that whole thing was done. And when she told me it would be out in two or three seconds, I laughed to myself. And I turned around and started doing stuff on my phone and then two or three seconds later, there she was with my bag and my food was ready. So regardless of the customer service I felt I was receiving, she did do her job and got me my food on time. But how often do we make judgments? In the Bible, in this story, as Peter confronts Cornelius, the categories that he's dealing with are clean and unclean. These are the categories that everyone will fall into, and it's an expression of how we are able to approach God in worship. Clean in the Old Testament means that you have a status. It doesn't have to do just with your appearance or what you look like or what you smell like. It has to do with your status to be able to approach God. Clean represents God's work of preparing us as humans to be in his presence when he meets with us on earth. Unclean, on the other hand, is to be associated with the other presence, with the devil, with things that are contrary to God's plan and his order and his law, things that have gone astray, things that are messy, things that are not matching up, things that are going the way of the world. And Peter is dealing with this question of categories, clean and unclean. When Jesus commissioned the apostles to go out into all the world, in Acts it says that he started at Jerusalem, and then they would expand to Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. If you are going to go out of Jerusalem, into places like Samaria and Galilee, if you're going to go as far as Rome or the ends of the earth, guess what you're going to encounter? A lot of unclean people. A lot of people that you would not associate with, that you normally would not give the time of day that you weren't, and you could justify it based on the fact that God said in the Old Testament that Gentiles and dealing with certain things in the Gentile world rendered them unclean. How are they supposed to do this? Well, you can tell that their categories are starting to expand already by chapter 10 based on the places they're going, the people they're talking to. For instance, Peter comes to Simon the Tanner. And Simon the Tanner was a leather worker who would make leather. He would probably be involved in slaughtering animals, skinning them, and then making leather out of their skins. Well, this was a messy business, and it was a smelly business. In fact, that's why they put him on the edge of town out by the sea. And tanners were not somebody that clean Jewish worshipers would associate with. They were coming into contact with too many unclean animals, and their job was viewed as unclean. So normally, you wouldn't go into a tanner's house. But he is Jewish. So Peter's accepted the Lord's will to go into Simon the Tanner's house because he is at least a Jew. Now, 
That's one thing. It's another thing for this to be expanded to Gentiles. There was a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was not only a Gentile, but a Roman. Not only a Roman, but a soldier. Not only a soldier, but a leader in Caesar's armies. In many ways, this is stretching Peter beyond his limits. He's being stretched like the leather hides that Simon the Tanner was stretching and working in his tannery. But this is exactly what Jesus warned would happen. Jesus told us no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Why? If you put old wine into old leather wineskins, they've already been stretched. As the wine ferments, it stretches the edges of those bags. If you put new wine into that old bag, it's going to stretch it even more and it's going to explode. It's going to burst. So Jesus puts new wine into new wineskins. And he's saying that his ministry and mission of coming to suffer and die and rise is going to expand categories that we have in our minds. He is going to expand categories for how God is going to reach people who we might say don't fit into our categories. Peter is gradually being stressed, and this is the greatest test he will face. We know it was a great test for Peter because when you read Galatians, and Paul is writing about this experience he had interacting with Gentiles, he said that on one occasion, Peter was fine with it. And he came in and he ate with these Gentiles, and he fellowshiped with them. But when certain important people came to town, and Peter knew they were in town, and they were watching what Peter was doing, suddenly he said, I, I don't think I can be coming over today. Suddenly he backed off because there were these influential leaders that he was more afraid of than the Lord. We know it was difficult for him. We know that Jesus was expanding his thoughts. And he does it through this vision where a great sheet that's described as coming down in some kind of a vessel. I still can't picture whatever it is that's happening, but I try. It's got all these animals in it. It comes down like a sheet and it opens up and Peter looks and it's got all kinds of animals. Some are clean and according to the law of Moses, some are unclean. And they've mingled together. Well, the mingling together part is a fellowship activity going on there. And not only would you not eat the unclean, but those clean ones that are mingling together, I don't think I want to associate with them either. And so Peter thinks, there's no way I can do this. This is not the way it's done. Let me tell you how we've always done it. The vision comes to Peter through the Spirit, a voice and another voice. What God has cleansed, you should not call common. And it happened three times, and the thing was taken back up into heaven. 
God is opening a window here for Peter to see what the Lord is thinking, what he's doing, how he's changing things. Peter is perplexed, it says. His mind cannot comprehend what this means, and it's not until Cornelius comes along that Peter can begin to interpret what this means. As the vision concludes, Peter has a knock at the door. And it is these men that Cornelius has sent. So a soldier and his servants have come to the door, these three men, and they're looking for Peter. Peter already knows why they're there, but he comes down and he says, I'm the one you're looking for, why are you here? And they refer to Cornelius. Now Cornelius is pictured in our text, not as just any old guy off the street, a very important person, but also one who fears God, who prays, and who gives offerings to the Lord. So he invites these men in, again, something that he would not normally have done, and then they take him the next way away from Joppa. If you remember Joppa in the Bible, it's the same city that Jonah came to. Why was Jonah going to Joppa? Remember the Lord had said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And I've got a mission for you. You're going to go to Nineveh and you're going to visit these people that you hate. And you're going to go to them and you're going to preach the word of the Lord and call them to repent. But Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes to Joppa. Because Joppa is the place on the coast where you can get a seafare to the farthest away land, the extravagant, wonderful world of Tarshish, where you won't ever have to deal with these hated Assyrians. And you can live a wonderful life of a famous prophet and be rich and famous in Tarshish. It's just this glamorous idea of another place you can go to avoid what the Lord is asking you to do. And here's Peter in Joppa on the coast, And he's asked to go to the people who are in power, oppressing the Jews, worshiping other gods. He's asked to go to the Romans. But unlike Jonah, Peter listens. He listens, but he's not quite sure why. For some reason, this part struck me as kind of funny. When Peter comes to Cornelius' house, Peter says, why did you send for me? And then Cornelius says, well, the Lord told me to send for you. Why are you here? And they have this debate where they're both basically saying, why are we here? Peter comes, why am I here? And Cornelius says, why are you here? The only thing they know is that the Lord wanted them to meet. Have you ever crossed paths with someone where at first you're like, I don't know why I'm talking to this person. I don't know why my life has intersected with this particular person. In fact, you're more likely thinking, I wish my life would have never intersected with this person. And you found yourself in that situation. Well, what was it that prepared Peter and prepared Cornelius for that visit? What they both had in common 
prior to the interaction that they were both praying. Prayer is a way that the Lord prepares us for things otherwise we could never handle or understand, or we just miss it. It would just blow right by us because we're not paying attention. But in these prayers, both Cornelius and Peter are being visited by the Spirit, being led by the Word to see there's something meaningful here. So Peter says to Cornelius, now Cornelius had already gathered a bunch of his friends, family, people that he knew, acquaintances. You know, this is a big deal to Cornelius. And when Peter shows up and says, why am I here? You know, they might have been dumbstruck. But Peter says, I am just a man like you. And you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with. That means to fellowship, join together. Or to visit, that means to stay in the same house. Anyone of another nation, any Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That doesn't mean that there are no behaviors that are unclean. The Bible is very clear that there are behaviors that are unclean, but it's opening up Peter's mind to say, before I make any judgments, I'm going to pray first. I'm going to listen second. I'm going to ask questions. And the Lord leads him to see there's something he's missing. So Cornelius retells how he was praying, how an angel visited him and told him to call for Peter. And now Peter begins to connect the dots. What happens in verse 34 then is that Peter unpacks the vision. He's saying that this is the meaning of the vision of the clean and unclean animals mingling together is what I'm dealing with right now. So he says, truly, almost maybe now I understand, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts. The first sermon was addressed to all the Jews from every nation under heaven in Pentecost. The second sermon was addressed to Gentiles, reaching out to every nation under heaven. God shows no partiality. This is a big statement. When you look at Paul's writings in Galatians, in Corinthians, in Colossians, he returns again and again to this theme, the impartial God and the impartial judge. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, For we ourselves are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners. That's the way they looked at it. We are God's people by birth, by right. We have the right to be called the chosen, the chosen people of God, elected and given his grace to live before him forever, and not the Gentiles whom we call sinners. Yet, he continues, we know that a person does not have the status of being right because of the works and performance of the Torah. 
He's thinking back to how the way they knew that they not only were God's people by birth, but they continue to be God's blessed people as they continue in the covenant law of Moses. But he says it's not by performing all those things that are prescribed in Moses, but rather it's by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. By associating ourselves, our heart, our trust, our fear, our allegiance to Jesus, the King. And we have believed in Jesus, the King, so that we have the status of being called right with God because we put our trust in him and not because we're performing all these things that set us apart. Because by the performance of the Torah, no one will be justified. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, which is what we do when we put ourselves in different categories based on human wisdom, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is unpacking what Peter's discovering in our text. And that is to say that Paul had to tear down the categories and structures that he had built his whole life being a Pharisee. The whole life of a Pharisee was to set yourself apart from other people who were not living a religious, godly life. So he had built all these structures in his life in order to make himself comfortable And that motivated him to the point where he would kill people who were building other structures, who were opposing the structures that he lived by. And God had to tear that all down, bring him to his knees, humble him completely before the Lord, just as he does with Peter. So he tears it down and he says, I can't rebuild these categories the way that I did before. And as soon as we start doing that, we lose Christ. So instead, it's by faith. And Peter then launches into the sermon of what faith is put into. The good news of peace through Jesus. He is Lord of all. Not just some. He retells the narrative how Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and with power. How he did many works. He freed those oppressed by the devil. And now we are his witnesses. He uses this word witness four times in these verses. He says we are witnesses of what he did in his life, his miracles and deeds and teachings. He says we are witnesses of his death and resurrection. He says we are witnesses of the final judgment that we all are going to have to answer to. And then he finally says, and the scriptures are witnesses. 
a fourfold witness to his life, his death and resurrection, to the final judgment, and then the scriptures tying it all together to show us this is what matters to us, this is what matters to the people outside these walls and outside those categories. And as he preaches this powerful message that anyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins, it changes the whole congregation. And the Holy Spirit is poured out. So it is then our responsibility to take this impartial message into a world that is very partial, that is filled with partiality, and show that there's this common ground. We are all sinners. And God has to tear us down so we can see that. And then build us up. And then there's a new category. And the point of all of this is not to say that sin doesn't matter. And we're just saying that you know anything goes and we can live however we want. God doesn't care. We should all just get along. The point is the new category is repentance. It says, Peter says, that those who repent are those who are accepted by the Lord. And that the baptism that these people received was a baptism of repentance. And that repentance is this new category of turning away from all the uncleanness out there to Jesus, who cleanses us from our sins, who puts us into this fellowship of other people who need to repent, and other people who sin, and other people who have the common allegiance to Jesus Christ. And in that category, we can reach and expand our thoughts and hearts to anyone in this world. Amen. Thank you.